Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 26, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, available today and every day at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your fine books, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we're back to talking about COVID because uh, the lunatics are out in force. And by lunatics, I'm also referring to Anthony Fauci, who uh, I would not have thought of as a lunatic really until his last couple of days. And we're going to get to what he did. But I think before we do that, we need to set the table with a jaw-dropping article that appeared in the New York Times yesterday by, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. It's K-N-V-U-L. Knievel? Like evil Knievel? Knievel? Knievel Sheikh and Hannah Sayo, or Hannah Sayo. <laughs> Knievel Sheikh and Hannah Sayo, okay? The article is titled, How to Live with COVID When You Are Tired of Living with COVID. The BA surge is a reminder that we need to take precautions to avoid illness, slow the relentless cycle of new variants, and minimize the disruption to our daily lives. So this is a guide to living with COVID in a time of COVID fatigue. And the answer that the article provides is, everybody should return to living in the summer of 2020. And I am not kidding. The article says, the small percentage of people who avoided COVID-19 for two and a half years are finding out BA5 has ways of slipping past their defenses. Even President Biden tested positive on Thursday. Like many Americans, the president and his aides had let their guard down, loosening stringent COVID precautions previously employed at the White House. Everyone just wants to get back to normal, though polls show that few Americans are sure what living with COVID should really live like. Look like most cities are unlikely to bring back mask mandates or other protective measures used earlier in the pandemic or even in the original Omicron surge. And then they quote Michael Osterholm, king of the COVID psychotics in 2020, who predicted two million deaths from COVID. You may remember we've had a shift in our baseline, said Osterholm. Hospitalizations have roughly doubled since May, and more than 400 Americans are dying every day. Earlier in the pandemic, we would never have accepted these numbers, Dr. Osterholm said. Okay, so what does the New York Times recommend to you to live with COVID when you're tired of living with COVID? Number one, max out your vaccines and boosters. Okay, well, fine. Number no, no, two. No, no, you can't, you can't even, you can't even glass, glass. You don't gloss over that. No, because they're okay. not talking about just boosters. You need to make sure that you have your four, fourth booster so that you can get your fifth booster because Later. that's not even yeah. available yet. But right. you have to be maxed out on your shots so that you can get another shot, whatever right. that shot is. Okay. Future. Two, find your new community COVID-19 indicators. You should keep an eye on COVID-19 statistics to figure out your own risk and decide when to add more levels of protection. Case numbers no longer closely track with hospitalizations because of the mix of natural or vaccine immunity, home testing, and treatments are available, blurring real-time tracking of the virus. 
So let, let's get this straight. We are not tracking the virus appropriately in real time because there are too many home tests and everything. But there are numbers that we have. The numbers are the cases that emerge after testing and hospitalizations. And those are wildly divergent. And they would only be more divergent if we had more testing numbers. In other words, we would know that there were way more cases of COVID detected with the same hospitalization numbers. So the blurring only makes the picture as it stands with official stats clearer. Right. So how does it recommend that you get around this? Quote, talk to your family and friends as well as other members of your community to find out whether they've had COVID recently or know anybody who's had COVID recently. So make sure you are talking to everyone in your life constantly about COVID all the time, everywhere. That's the only way you'll find out your local prevalence. And it may make of you make you into an absolutely miserable person to be around and a paranoid person to be around. But that's the only way you can navigate your world appropriately is if you're constantly right. thinking and talking about COVID all the time. Okay, now I'm going to skip the key point, which is actually point number three, but I'm going to jump to point number four so we can end on point number three. Point number four is keep rapid tests on hand and use them. Okay, remember how the problem is that we have blurry case numbers because people are testing too much at home? Test too much at home says the New York Times, after complaining that home testing is blurring the numbers, okay? Rapid tests are an effective tool to combat the spread of COVID-19 if you regularly use them. So it's not only that you should use them, but you should use them regularly, okay? So uh, that's like, I don't know, four or five bucks a test. So please, by all means, add $15 a week to your whole, you know, household, uh, you know, budget when inflation is running at, uh, you know, in, in, in goods is running at over 10%. Okay. So, but like, that's fine. Everybody should test constantly. Keep a stash of rapid tests at home. Okay. You can get three free tests from the government. It says, I, you know, let good luck getting them. Uh, just remember that you can test negative even if you have symptoms of COVID-19. Quarantine if you think you may be sick. Test again a day or two after your negative result to be sure. And if you have COVID-19, test after your symptoms have eased or even uh, disappeared. Because nobody knows that, you know, if you have COVID, you should test to see if you don't have COVID. That's really, really good advice from the New York Times. And then number five, if you're traveling, find out how to get treatment. It's a good idea to travel with a printed list of all your current medications, your medical and vaccination history, and your provider's contact information in case you need to seek medical care while traveling. Keep playing, said Dr. Annie Lutmeyer, a professor of infectious diseases at UC San Francisco. Also, interesting trivia fact, that is the sister of Julie Bowen, the star of Modern Family. But we'll move on. Keep plenty of room on your credit card. That's not in the New York Times. I'm telling you that because I'm insane and I know stuff like that. Keep plenty of room on your credit card and read your health or travel insurance policies carefully to see which expenses they will cover if you have to extend your trip because of COVID-19, okay? Now we're going to go back to Kate, point number three so that we can get the, the best part. Three, mask up and not just indoors. 
Wear good quality masks in public places where you need to protect yourself, whether you have been infected with COVID-19 or not. Each infection may still bring the risk of developing debilitating long COVID symptoms. Yes, now we suddenly transit to you're getting long COVID, a highly problematic condition for which we do not yet have verifiable proof of its existence, okay? Anyway, that's what Caitlin Rivers, an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security said. For me, the thought process hasn't changed too much, Dr. Rivers said. I continue to wear a mask whenever I'm indoors and try to move as many activities as I can outdoors. Other experts agree that if you want to go maskless, outdoor air will be considerably safer than indoor spaces. But even outdoors... Even outdoors, people, the closer people are together, the higher the risk of catching the virus. So if you are hosting a summer barbecue, you may want to invite fewer guests to reduce the risk of virus transmission. You can also check that everyone is vaccinated and has recently tested negative at bigger gatherings, such as outdoor concerts or weddings, where you have less control. You should mask up and monitor yourself for new symptoms for a few days afterward, Dr. Osterholm said. This is how the New York Times suggests you handle COVID when you're tired of COVID, which is to say, live like we are in the middle of the bubonic plague. Well, I, I want to add for our listeners who who can't see the really kind of insanely appropriate because it 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 uh, demonstrates exactly the the disordered mind that minds that wrote this piece. Uh, the uh, photo that was used to illustrate this in the New York Times online is a picture of some people in a beautiful sunny park walking along, and there are two women in the front, and they're both all masked up, but with what appears to be kind of cloth masks, which we know to be fairly ineffective. So they're outdoor masks with ineffective cloth masks. And behind them is a guy walking along who's got <laughs> what what uh, South Park uh, appropriately called his mask is a chin diaper. He's got a, a mask on, which is a medical mask, but it's pulled beneath his chin. And they're all walking along. The, that picture to me, I, I almost didn't read the article after I saw this. I'm like, oh, I know exactly where this is going. But it shows, you said control, John. I think that's an important point. There's a sense in which this, this outlier group, um, among whom are many in the media elite and in, unfortunately in the political elite, want to cling to this idea that they have some control over uh, endemic COVID now, that they are they can still do things, they can still take measures as individuals that will put them in charge of themselves and keep them safe from this virus, even though, as they have to now acknowledge, for most people, particularly those who've been vaccinated, it's now fairly mild. I mean, it's unpleasant, but we can see this in real time with Biden, who they announced this morning, you know, most of his symptoms are gone. He's been doing virtual meetings. You know, they're putting out these pieces, these uh, pictures of him, you know, sitting on the patio at the White House with his dog doing work. Uh, and he's a, a high risk individual. So they are clinging to some sense of control at a time when actually all the signals show they should let go of that control and embrace the endemic nature of this and get on with their lives. So this to me is long COVID. Long COVID is not, is not, is, is not an, is not an it's individual. It's a psychological condition. <clears throat> well, it's, it's a sort of national political malady is, is, is long COVID. It means, it means extending the, the COVID era indefinitely. We have, we have long COVID nationally that, and it's so, so, so the, the, it's, it's a sort of, you know, it's, it's wish fulfillment here. That is, that is the nature of the problem, right? Yep. The, the virus that necessitated the engineering of a mini civilizational collapse 
is still with us. Indeed, they still talk about it as though it's, its prevalence is pandemic levels. So we cannot reckon with anything that happened in 2020. We can't reckon with the virus. We can't reckon what we did to confront the virus. And that's likely what they want, given uh, Mr. Fauci's inexplicable media tour in which he's saying that everything we did in 2020 wasn't sufficient. And we needed to do more. We needed to be more interventionist, shut down more things, make sure the kids didn't go to school even longer. Even today, you're not, you shouldn't be sending your kids to school unmasked unless it's a quote, safe environment, whatever that means. Um, they, they don't want us to reckon with what happened. I don't suspect they believe that we'll come to the proper conclusions if we did. But see this, so all throughout the pandemic, Noah, you were you said this very early on, and I think a lot of people have now come around to this, but there was a sense in which in previous eras, people just wanted to forget what happened, right? They forgot it, they moved on, they got on with their lives, but there's something really weird happening with this pandemic. It's that they want to forget the huge errors in judgment that they made, and they want everybody else to forget those huge errors in judgment, but they still want us to cling to certain aspects of the pandemic because Remember, we talked and we talked about this many times. There was an effort, the the you know, uh, no no crisis, don't let any crisis go to waste, where they wanted to seize on some of the power that they were given by the people who you know to do things that they otherwise would not have been allowed to do. They still want some of those measures in place. They still and Fauci is a kind of perfect example of this. They still want public health officials to be dictating social and political policy matters that they have no business dictating. But they so do let, want let's, to, let's to detail those. Wait, yeah. let's detail those because it's <laughs> worth remembering since there is a great forgetting going on. We had evictions suspended. We had the right. So we had uh, mortgages, mortgage payments slowed. We had that was done through some weird power asserted by the Centers for Disease Control over private contract, which is what the process of eviction is part of, right? You sign a lease, it's a legal document. You are required to do certain things in order to maintain your residence somewhere. If you do not fulfill your end of the contract, the contract can be voided and you can be removed from that place of residence. When this all started, that was entirely understandable, right? So then a year into COVID, when we had already gone through the surge and there were vaccinations and all of that, the CDC, there was a huge fight over the, whether the CDC could continue to maintain an eviction moratorium, which the CDC should not have been permitted in the first place to take authority over. And I, I mean, there were locally and in state places, this was going on times a million, depending on whether you were in a highly regulatory state with a regulatory governor and a regulatory political apparatus. And then of course there was, everything was schools. So- um, And crime, are, they remember yeah. people were not allowed to be kept in, in jail longer than a certain amount of time because that could right. put them at risk. So there are a lot of people who were processed through and released who probably should have been behind bars. Yeah. Like Michael Cohen, by the way, just to pick a case of somebody who was released from prison early uh, that, you know, liberals might, might have been happy to see remain in prison. I don't know. Anyway, so we have that stuff that has all been is, is kind of slowly getting memory hold. But I think it is very important to say that what they want is for us to forget the mistakes they made. And they're they don't think that they were mistakes, first of all. And of course, you can't prove that they were mistakes because you can't run the counterfactual because history has already happened. 
But is this so you, is this their version ahead. of real communism was never tried? Hmm. Well, that's Fauci's well, version. It's their right. version now, of real Noah. communism was never even advocated. Noah, <laughs> right? Tell us what Fauci's been doing. He's doing a media tour. He's he's doing a blitz. He's on CNN. He's on the Hill. He's talking about his record here and trying to retcon us into believing that he didn't say what he said at the time. And in fairness to him, a lot of his statements were incredibly vague so as to be subject to interpretation. You know, you can perform exegesis on anything he says and try to figure out what your preferred meaning is. But he says the following on in an interview with The Rising uh, with Batya Unger Sargon. I have always been well aware that and I have always felt and go back and look at my statements that we need to do everything we can to keep schools open and safe. And by safe means, if you need to wear masks and not wear masks, get better ventilation, surround children with people who are vaccinated, if the vaccine's available to help protect children. I've been off on record saying that. He's saying, I didn't recommend locking down anything. Quote, that's his quote. In May of 2020, let's go back and look at some of the statements. May of 2020. The idea of having treatments available or vaccination to facilitate the reentry of students into the fall term would be something that would be a bit of a bridge too far. We're really not talking about treating any students who gets ill, but how the student will feel safe going back to school. If this was a situation where we had a vaccine, that would be the end of the issue in a positive way. But even at the top speed that we're going, I don't see a vaccine playing the ability to get individuals back into school this term, meaning the rest of 2020 and significantly into 2021. And as we all recall, the advent of the vaccines and their approval for young children did not eliminate school closures, remote learning, or even facilitate the end of masking. Indeed, we still have masking in quite a few uh, municipalities around this country. In fact, it's making a comeback in part because of Dr. Fauci's advocacy, which he's still doing. The idea here is to prevent us from having a full reckoning with what the policies were and what their unintended consequences were and who was responsible for them. So let's go back to uh, Abe's long COVID point. So long COVID may exist as a psychological and political uh, condition. So the only way to judge in some fair, I don't know what you call it, epidemiological sense is you want to take states that did things in a very unlike fashion and say there was, you know, masking, school clothes, all this in this state. And then in this state, there weren't. How did they do? And from everything that we can tell, if we use the two states that have been used as polar opposites here, Florida, which is the third largest pop state in terms of population in the United States, I believe, and California, which is the largest. Uh, on a on a statewide basis, there is almost no difference epidemiologically between Florida and California. That is four or five different people have done studies of this. And what do we know happened? People were way freer. Businesses were freer. Schools were open. Masking was not was not required, though it was encouraged in certain places and individual businesses had every right to you know require it in their in their spaces and all of that um that should really be the end of it i mean i don't know how else we can judge and if it was revert just to interrupt if yeah. if if the uh 
outcomes were reversed, if the super lockdown states like California had better outcomes for everyone, both uh, epidemiologically and just in terms of education and, and social welfare and well-being and e economically, you know, you better believe they would be constantly hammering home this message. They are ignoring the very, very stark realities here. And, and it's part of the reason, part of the impetus for the for the constant attacks on DeSantis, particularly from Gavin Newsom, who did terribly, terribly during this pandemic as a leader. By the way, if you compare countries as well, not just states, um, you know, there was the, the the constant complaint, especially while Trump was still president, that we need to do these extreme things that 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 other that, that places like uh, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, wherever else, Australia, New Zealand, uh, New Zealand have, have, have done. They know how to take this seriously. They're safe. Oh, Every one of those places has since had huge surges. Uh, Japan right now has the most cases it, that, that it's ever had. Right. And this so is what Sachi is saying right now today. He says we should have done, quote, much, much more stringent restrictions right. in order to prevent the spread of asymptomatic COVID transmission. What would, that, mean, look, what would that even look like? I mean, one way of looking at this is that we had we done more. Uh, and way more, and somehow whatever mitigation strategies that we had pursued had led to a led led to a lower death toll in the first year year and a half. Um, then the variants that weaken COVID presumably wouldn't necessarily have developed. Because they had to develop, we had vaccine, they had this, they had to elude things that standard immunities and things that are developing in populations start to start to develop. And so, I, I mean, this is a bizarre point to make, but had we not gone through the initial surge with its horrible results, we wouldn't necessarily be in a position where we're now facing a much weaker and much more easily dealt with endemic condition. The severity of the original of the Delta might have remained. That even supposes that we can achieve that. And I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that anything we did prevented the transmission of this disease past the point of lockdown. Once lockdown was over, and once we learned that there was a variant that could evade the protections of the of the vac of the vaccinations, that you'll get it. It won't be severe, but you'll get it and you'll transmit it. There was what could we have done? There's nothing we could have done. Well, had we tried to do any of the things that these other countries imposed, um, I don't know that we would have survived in terms of stability. Uh, we're sort of hanging on by some threads as it is. Uh, we as could was, not uh, have. We well, could and, not have done them. And we guess could what? Not guess what China. Yeah. Well, and guess what China is doing with its with its monitoring on uh, smartphones that it you know remember it gave people a pass a green or red to go into certain areas. It was one of the ways they kind of geofence you know infection, and it was this high tech thing. And there were several observers in this country who thought, oh, this is amazing. We should be doing something like this. This will protect more people. They're now using it to track dissidents and to block them from going to certain regions of the country to protest. So just saying, just saying. <laughs> I mean, a fifth of the population of the most populous country on earth is now living in some form of lockdown. So, um, you know, 
I, I don't know what that means. I mean, we we came we came closer. What's interesting is there were clear violations of the Constitution in lockdown in the in the stages of lockdown. I think primarily the ones that required the closure of churches and houses of worship. The First Amendment guarantees freedom of assembly. It does not qualify the guarantee of freedom of assembly, though there is case law and stuff that says that, you know, obviously in the case of a, you know, you know, the plague again, or, you know, leprosy or something like that, then that public public safety emergency measures can be taken just as in war, emergency measures can be taken to re restrict freedom of speech. When, ex when the existence of the entire society is at stake, uh, that is the only way that you can qualify it. But um, that case was never properly made about COVID. The, the, the problem with COVID was that it was going to produce an unacceptably high death toll, not that it was going to take the entire country down. When you restrict freedom of speech in a time of war, that is because the loss of a war could literally mean the end of your country and its subsummation, you know, by another. So, uh, you know, those are, that's an interesting thing, but we allowed that to happen without a lot of pushback, right? Except that when progressive hunger to assemble was paramount. That is when the public health authorities in the summer of 2020 decided that um, the need to protest the killing of George Floyd outweighed the public health emergency that they were placing everybody else inside and without the ability to congregate at risk, right? So you, you could basically you couldn't go out, you couldn't go to church, you couldn't go to a restaurant, you weren't supposed to have parties, you weren't supposed to see other people, but a million of you could congregate somewhere, you know, to protest George Floyd. That that was okay. That was really, I think, the the moment at which the rubber met the road uh, because, in the United States. Because they literally deemed the, the killing of George Floyd a public health emergency. Right, which um, let's say that it was it would still be in the ranking of public health emergencies lower than the larger public health emergency um and i i do think that uh a lot of what happened including the fact that we now live in a in a in a society in which mistrust has now become talk about endemic i mean is 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 really totally endemic there's a stunning poll from the institute of politics of the university of chicago conducted by neil newhouse the republican joel benenson the democrat um that shows unimaginably high levels of mistrust in the united states for the other party the other per the other per people who don't agree with you institutions the idea that you might have to take up arms against the government all of that now, i think that that moment in june of 2020 when public health authorities said it was okay for you to go demonstrate, but that if you went to a restaurant, you would be arrested. Or if you were a restaurateur and you opened a restaurant, you would be arrested. That was the moment at which the mistrust became almost excruciatingly impossible. The, the, the gaslighting, uh, the liberal gaslighting of conservative America reached this moment from which it is going to be very hard for there to be a return. And Fauci coming out now and saying, I never said that. Not just you know? that, he's saying we failed in very clear terms. He's saying that our objective in 2020 failed because we did not prevent the levels of COVID transmission 
that he thinks are acceptable. So what's the point of this exercise? Why is he even doing this media swing? Save his own vanity. Well, there's your answer. I don't know. I think there might be something uh, else behind this, which is that um, and just having spoken, you know, my little uh, soapbox with my my parents and schools and the school closures last year, there is a there is some momentum building behind the idea that a lot more restrictions have to be reenacted in the fall when kids go back to school on, on college campuses and in K through 12 schools. And you see little signs of it here and there, little I, you know, little messages coming from the school system saying, let's make sure everybody's, you know, it's good that they want everyone to be vaccinated, but we might need to mask up. You know, they're giving all these little hints. I was uh, one of my sons went to the public library yesterday, and DC's public libraries have had a masking requirement all the way through. They have never lifted it. And they have these stupid signs and like, you know, with like fun you know, images of summer that say it's summer, but masking still required. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's offensive. And I think. I think that in in these blue states, the ones that went on these long extended lockdowns past the point of any rational reason for doing so, that's going to return in the fall. And even the fact that people have been vaccinated, boosters are available, therapeutics are available, and the strains are milder, it's not going to stop them because they are they are in some ways motivated by inertia. They they created this entire mini bureaucracy of policies and enforcers, and it's hard to let that go, particularly in schools. I, I don't know. I I. I... I just go by the fact that uh, nobody is wearing masks in New York City on public transit where they are required. And uh, and this has now become a kind of, you know, it, it literally is like somebody smoking under a no smoking sign somewhere. You know, but they can, but they're adults in a public space. I'm worried more about when kids get put in back into classrooms. They don't get to do that. They don't get to smoke in front of the no smoking sign. They have to have the mask or they're not allowed in the school building. Like I am, I think that is going to be a common thing in the fall, unfortunately. I mean, Uh, right uh, now, New York City is the largest school system uh, in the United States. And the line of the chancellor and the mayor is that they are not going to require masks in schools in September. Now, maybe what's going on here is a softening of the ground to make that necessary. And of course, we do have this bizarre thing where the line that is now being proffered is, oh, it's going to get much worse in the fall. It's going to be so much worse in the the fall. It's going to be so much worse. I'm not sure why they think the fall is going to be so much worse. I genuinely don't. I mean, the idea that they're two or three things have to happen for the fall to be worse. In other words, there's a new variant that develops and the new variant evades the the immunities just like the current BA5 variant does. But we are at, according to these, you know, stats and numbers, we are at 90 to 95% exposure to COVID in the United States in terms of population. That is, you either got it or you, uh, you know, you've been triply or quadruply vaccinated. You're this, you're that. You whatever it is, you have COVID in your system, or whatever. And so, uh, it is unlikely that a and they they a variant came along that was able to kind of elude it and give you COVID again if you had COVID before. But it's very weak. It's actually very weak. If you had COVID before and you get it again now, it's very weak. So they're just basically saying we're going to have to mask up 
in case a new variant develops that will be worse for you than the current variant, which is just logically unlikely. I mean, it's not logic. I mean, I guess, you know, this is... I'm just saying, like, everything that we know about what's happened with the variants as they've come down the road is that they get weaker and weaker. One of the reasons they can elude the t is because they're not detectable because they're not strong enough or they 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 slip some protein or they whatever it is but they but they, but they're weaker in almost every other aspect uh, to go back to the times article for a second um because i think this is speaks to your point about smoking under a non-smoking sign um i have a, a bad habit of reading the comments in times articles um which is it's it's bad because they're 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 usually not um, informed and I don't know that it gives you much of a picture of anything, but I have to say, I was surprised to see as much pushback as there was um, among times readers, among times readers who sign up to comment. Um, there was a lot of, I'm done with this. I masked up the, the first two years. I was petrified, but this is enough. I've had it. My, my mother's had it. This, um, so, What's interesting here is part of what's interesting here is the extent to which this is, again, a case of these voices and institutions completely not speaking to where the American people are, even even there among their own readership and their own fan base. I don't understand why we're not seeing more pushback against us from Democratic politicians. There's nothing going for Joe Biden right now except the onset fully and entirely of the post pandemic period. It's here. It's upon us, uh, you know, notwithstanding the occasional Illinois that is you know, constantly renewing its emergency declaration, the absence of any emergency notwithstanding. Uh, so I don't understand why this is a, just seems like just an act of political masochism in deference to this expert class and a few very loud, very vocal members of the base uh, who are demanding this sort of thing, even though they don't practice what they're what they're preaching. Generally, it's very, it's very odd. Okay, so let's take this as an X factor in the midterms then, because you raise a very interesting point. All, we're all we've been saying now for the last six months is, uh, is it going to be Republican extremism on issues, uh, according to the mainstream media, and extremist candidates that are going to mitigate the possible damage, you know, the, the likely damage to Democrats in the midterms by standard issue what happens when it's a midterm with a democratic president a democratic congress and inflation and the horrible economic atmosphere well if you're a republican politician running in 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 one of the in running for uh the house or the senate never mind governorships in 2022 and this is all going on now how much are you going to want to talk about this in the debates are you going to want to run commercials on it where does Stacey Abrams stand on masking? Tell Stacey Abrams you don't want to go back into lockdown. Um, you know, and then these weird cases like these uh, these little known Senate candidates like uh, like uh, Jason O'Day in uh, in Colorado, who uh, is people think is like the hidden X factor in the November elections running against Michael Bennett, the Democratic senator. Why can't he lever this? This is something that every, it's like inflation. This affects every single person in the country. 
a lot of issues don't affect everybody. You know, they they only affect a certain, you know, if you talk about social security or, you but know, Medicare or something like that. Yeah. But there's also a weird way in which they're going to be, uh, I would think as a voter, even a, even if there was a someone who was inclined to vote uh, for Democrats, they're being doubly gaslit here, right? So for the first, first of all, they've been told forever that, oh, inflation is transitory. Now we're being told, oh, let's redefine what it means to be in recession. We're not really in recession. But those are both, from an economic standpoint, extremely condescending messages for Democrats being to be giving to people who are suffering rather than addressing what their suffering feels like and how they're going to fix it. On the other hand, you have them saying, well, you know, COVID's still a danger. We might have to mask up. I mean, and they look around and they see, as you say, John, they, they look around and see people living their lives and they think, what is this political party telling us? Like they are not living in our reality. And that distance from what the politicians and the media class are telling Democratic voters and what they are actually living now. And this has changed from during the middle of the pandemic, where I think a lot of Blue state uh, voters were like, we trust our government. We want that's why they wanted Trump out. We trust the Biden administration is going to tell us they're going to take care of us. Well, even that has faded. I mean, the, the fact that Biden himself, Mr. Precaution about COVID, has COVID now and is going to be, uh, we all hope, fine. Um, they are being told something that the real life experience of even Democratic voters now doesn't comport with. It is a national issue. We forget the administration is still appealing a lawsuit um, or appealing a ruling, a court ruling that prevented prevented the CDC from imposing mask mandates on transits on federal transit networks. Um, and that's primarily an administrative issue an attempt to reserve powers for the executive branch, perhaps, but it still keeps the issue alive. And, and you know, as, as recently as last week and in, in NPR, they're talking about this appeal and talking about how Republicans at the state level, quote, waged a campaign against school mask mandates. Most of the dozen cases were dismissed, but nonetheless had a chilling effect on school policies, a chilling effect on school policies that prevent children from engaging with each other at close range and seeing each other's faces and having a full day at school. A chilling effect. Yeah, damn right. And good. And every federal candidate can make an issue of this if they right. wanted to. Well, wait, but that's yeah, go ahead. Except. It's not an issue that's live on most voters' minds, actually. Oh, it does. It barely registers. Right. Barely no, registers. So, so right. that so that makes it hard to leverage. No, I don't agree. I don't think so. Because yeah. the point is, you want to make the demo. If you're a Republican running for office, you want to make the Democrat uncomfortable, right? You want to throw your rival on the defensive. They're not going to know how to talk about this. And the Democrat, specter of restoring Democratic the candidates for Senate in particular. The specter of restoring an unacceptable status quo is the entirety of the democratic message, a condition that does not exist anymore, but may yet again someday soon. You mean turnabout's fair play? Correct. Yeah. No, but I'm just saying, if you're Stacey Abrams, you don't want to talk about COVID in the debate. If you're with, a Republican, you, know, you don't want to talk with, about with Trump. Brian Kemp. Right. So Jared Polis, the Democratic governor of of Colorado, was. Uh, you know, a dove on COVID in democratic terms and did not want the state to shut down. He wanted to let people, you know, live their lives. And it would just be interesting to know if you're, if you're O'Day running against Michael Bennett, you can say to Michael Bennett, so do you stand with our, with your own governor, Jared Polis, or do you stand with Anthony Fauci? I just want to know. I, it's not, I'm not saying, just um, tell me, tell me whose side you're on here. Whose side Fine. are you I, on? So, so I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll amend what I was saying. Okay, it, it is not hard to leverage the point, um, but I think it's a sort of 
it's a kind of a side point because there is so much that the Democrats have done that that voters do care about. That is a huge issue. There's the economy. There's crime. Um, there's 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 uh, the education issues. There's there's assorted things that that to to sort of raise the specter of of this this thing that could return that isn't really on people's minds. It's a it's a it's an it's an additional point, but I don't think it's fair. It, I'm not saying it's a yeah. central point. I'm just saying that it, it becomes a kind of X factor point, and it also depends on how it's responded to. In other words, if you respond to it well, you could neutralize it. But if you bungle it, if you're a Democratic politician and you bungle it and you say things that unnerve people as opposed to comforting them about, you know, what you will do if you're in power, then it then it can have, you know, an outsized effect, particularly in a, you know, in a close in a close race. Um, let's let's move on to um Walter Russell Mead, uh, whose uh, remarkable book, The Ark of the Covenant, we'll be talking about some more over the coming weeks about the American, the relationship between Jews and the United States. Uh, Columnist who Wall Street Journal has uh, a very interesting piece in which he says the Biden administration is about to face an unbelievable series of tests and challenges on foreign policy that they never fully anticipated and he mostly points out that the um the iran nuclear deal or whatever negotiation that the administration was attempting to uh, generate or game they were attempting to play either sort of resuscitate the iran nuclear deal that obama entered and that uh, trump exited from the jcpoa um that it, it really is about to die and that uh, Iran is now galloping, according to the International Atomic Energy Agency, toward uh, getting uh, enough fissionable material to make a nuclear warhead. It is galloping. It has turned off the cameras uh, installed to make sure that they don't do the things that will allow them to process uranium to a weaponizable level um, or that they and, and various other things. And the Biden administration has put himself on notice saying it will not be acceptable for Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Well, what are they going to do? What, what are they going to do? The deal is falling. The deal is, um, is not going to happen for obvious reasons among them that Russia is the guarantor of the deal. And we are no longer in normal diplomatic relations with Russia in which we can trust them to do anything that will be a benefit to anyone. If it would indeed be a benefit to people. And then, um, uh, you know, they're saying they can't have a nuclear weapon. Well, put your money where your mouth is. Are you actually going to take steps? Which could mean military action. And then we have two other fronts, according to Meade. Uh, uh, the most, the most, the, the most interesting in terms of our current predicament being China is getting incredibly aggressive about the idea that Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House, is going to visit Taiwan in the next couple of weeks. China has said no uncertain terms that Nancy Pelosi should not be allowed, Biden should stop Nancy Pelosi from going to Taiwan, and that apparently, quietly, the Biden administration is trying to encourage her not to go to Taiwan because this is extraordinarily provocative. And this, according to Meade, also raises the prospect that China may 
make some aggressive moves on Taiwan and that this they're going crazy over Pelosi's visit in part because they're looking for a casus belli to allow them to make a move on closing the Straits of Taiwan, through which a lot of, uh, you know, U.S. shipping and warship various, uh, you know, take place, or to do something even more radical. And that the Biden administration, at the worst possible time, when they're facing inflation, they're facing this, they're facing that, is now going to face a circumstance in which uh, they are they are challenged on foreign policy terms on multiple fronts. And then, of course, there's, you know, Ukraine. What do you guys make of this? Abe? Well, I think it's it's all um, exacerbated and intensified by the fact that these foreign provocateurs or adversaries see an extraordinarily weak president. Um, uh, and they and they and they see a, a United States that is not as confident um, as it was. This is this is when when they when you make moves like this regarding Iran. In a general way, I, I just think that there was a switch in, in language a long time ago when, when Obama became president and, and started seeking out this deal, the, the, the first JCPOA. Um, he said, look, we either do this or the alternative is the people who don't want to do this, they want to bomb, they want to bomb Iran. And he was sort of creating a sort of rhetorical uh, a trap that I think Iran hawks sort of thought they were getting out of by saying, we're not talking about uh, bombing Iran. We're talking about a better deal. Uh, we just want a better deal. This is a bad deal. And I always thought that was a mistake. Um, I think there was always a case for at least talking about the the probability or the possibility that we would eventually need to, to take military action against Iran or someone would, perhaps Israel. Um, and so the, part of the problem here is that it's become unthinkable now over the course of all those years. Um, to sort of reintroduce the idea, I think, is, gonna, is going to be um, really a, a difficult sell, if indeed anyone is even going to try to sell it. Well, and, and I think Iran is perfectly happy to watch partisans on either side of this issue in the U.S. Uh, bicker over whether it was bad to go into the deal in the first place or Trump was worse to withdraw unilaterally from it. I mean, that helps Iran. The more that that kind of partisan bickering goes on and the more delay that the Biden administration enacts while doing nothing in, in terms of real deterrence is good for Iran. We have every reason to believe that Israel is not bluffing, that they will not allow a breakout. Uh, they will take military action to prevent it. Israel and we have every reason to believe the region will support Israel them. has been Israel has been taking a version of military action right. against the Iranian nuclear program for 15 years now. Right. I mean, Precisely. you know, and, most, mostly it's Iraq, covert. So. Yeah. Right. So they have, there's precedent for this. And we have every reason to believe that uh, the region will support them. And that would be a regional war. Um, we also have plenty of people in the in the Pentagon saying pretty openly now that they do believe the PRC is going to make a move on Taiwan. And we have every reason to believe that that would be a world war. Um, they would shut down the, the, the South China Sea and arrest commerce in a way that we simply cannot allow. And we would have to reopen navigation by force. I mean, the China thing is so big. It is it, the topic is so colossal. 
that it's almost hard to talk about because once you start talking about it, it's like, why are you even talking about anything else? Like this is, you know, this is Japan before World War II. This is the assertion of a of a um, global uh, control of, you know, a part of the world uh, with a gigantically dominant military power and the only you know the only rival is you know half a planet away and what are you going to do about it um i i wonder i i think it's good that the people are you know ringing the alarm bell but you also read that china is entering uh you know it, its first really serious economic slowdown they're claiming that it's because of their COVID restrictions, but it probably isn't. I mean, you've had this, they've had this tightening over the last seven years of whatever free economic, uh, you know, latitude they've been giving uh, their people. You have, um, you have a, a mortgage crisis where developers in China have been, you know, developing tens of millions of uh you know housing projects they're running out of money they don't have supplies they have customers who bought in without the houses being done who've been paying them mortgage money who are now not paying them anymore because they have no confidence that the homes are going to be done there could be massive defaulting um in a way that will challenge the chinese banking system um all we ever hear about is china's you know rising prosperity and china's economic power and how it's going and stuff is happening there now that could encourage military action to be a distraction or to you know create a nationalist frenzy in a country that you know is getting increasingly uh depressed about its uh you know about its covid restrictions and these other problems but it also does say you know it also suggests that they may be more cautious about you know, like rolling the dice on not a necessarily massive... uh, if they perceive themselves to be in a state of decline as opposed yeah. to growth, then mm -hmm. that can make them even more risk prone. Right. Well, and, that's what I. Right. right. I They've mean, also been re-Sovietizing right. the economy in ways yeah. that um, probably facilitate that kind of action. Right. What happened? What, what what happened to the idea? And I'm asking this because I don't know the answer to the idea that. China was looking on uh, to, to Putin's slog and the global condemnation of it and all the difficulty and the, the fact that it wasn't, uh, that it hasn't been a cakewalk at all. And um, therefore maybe the idea was that, that, that China would then be discouraged from making its own rash moves on Taiwan. That hasn't gone away as far as I know that, I mean, but there are multiple lessons you can learn there. Not one of them being that you can't, take over a country and break its national identity with a quarter million people. You actually need an overwhelming uh, force. Um, and, you know, in the West, we should be very cautious about the idea that we fully understand how China thinks of us, because just based on the Ukraine experience or Ukraine experience with Russia is Russia completely misjudged the West, entirely misjudged its resolve, entirely misjudged its willingness to materially support Ukrainian sovereignty. And we completely misjudged uh, Russia's uh, readiness and tactics and capacity to execute this kind of operation. So what 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 is every the idea here that we we fully have our hands around what 
China understands and China has their hands around us is sort of betrayed by our experience in Europe. We don't really know what we don't know. and they, We don't know what they don't know. The only def, the, the best defense against our own misjudgments is to rebuild a deterrent force that envisions a two front war again. We abandoned the two front war doctrine in 2012, which is very short sighted at the time. But maybe you couldn't foresee the prospect of another great power conflict in two distinct theaters a decade ago. You sure can now. There's no excuse for it now. Well, I, I also, you know, uh, the manic nature of the way that we talk about uh, the, you know, the Russia-Ukraine struggle, like three weeks ago, two weeks ago, everybody suddenly went incredibly pessimistic. And now the people who are paying attention are like, you know what, that wasn't so bad. And Ukraine is now marshalling forces to try to take back Kherson and, and they have a good plan. And the Institute for the Study of War and others have taken, you know, have said, uh, the gloom of the last, the gloom that that uh, grabbed everybody sort of like around July 4th was misplaced. Uh, the Russians are not in good shape. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have a plan for further action. And the Ukrainians have a very obvious uh, way to go, which is to go at the Russian gains and reverse them. Whereas Russia doesn't know where it wants to go to solidify the gains that it has, which of course have only basically been to control the territory that they controlled before they went to war anyway, or most of it. So um, that makes a difference. Like three weeks ago, you would have said, well, China, what? look, the Ukrainians are losing. So that gives China, you know, reason to think that they can, you know, maybe it'll be bad for a couple of weeks in terms of world opinion and then blah, 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 blah. Or, but now you look at it and you say, well, you know, like don't invade a country like you're making a huge mistake. Not that they'll necessarily stage a land invasion of Taiwan. You know, they just want to choke it dead, right? That's that's the idea of. I don't think you can rule out a land invasion. No, you. I'm not it's ruling not out. What the Pentagon's ruling out, and you know, um, Kirby, forget his first name, John Kirby, John Kirby, the spokesman, the spokesperson yeah. for the Pentagon. I was asked about this. You know, we're moving all these uh, naval assets and um, platforms, weapons platforms into Europe. And does that, uh, Phil Wegman over at Real Clear Politics asked Kirby whether or not that de depletes our own readiness and uh, takes our focus off the Pacific and shouldn't the Italians and the French be patrolling the Mediterranean on their own, et cetera. And Kirby says, yes, essentially, yeah. Uh, the security situation has changed in Europe, though, and we have to do both. But we, we can't do both. We, we just don't have the capacity to do both. Not well. We certainly didn't deter Russia. It doesn't seem like we're deterring China. So if deterrence is broken down, it's incumbent on us to restore it. Yeah, well, you need a national. I mean, ultimately, the only That's way that's back do to that... Iran, by the way. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you. Yeah. But that was something that um, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo said in 2019, I think, early 20, mid 2019, that deterrence, the deter, we, we had failed to deter Iran. Iran right. was entirely undeterred. It was executing strikes on American positions in Iraq. It was executing drone strikes on the world's largest petroleum processing facility in, in Saudi Arabia. Deterrence needed to be restored. And what did we do to restore it? We decapitated the IRGC. Yeah. So we, so we, we, yeah. So you're talking about you actually have to. Deterrence isn't merely a defensive 
Deterrence takes many forms, and deterrence can take an aggressive form. The, the central fact about deterrence is that it takes place without the ambition on the part of the deterrer to seize and own things. You can take aggressive and offensive military action for the purpose of restoring either a status quo or, or restoring a sense of order because your ambition is not imperial. It is not to control and to have in your own hands. It is to stop the bad actors from doing bad things. And that may require not only, you know, like building a wall, but, you know, uh, going at them aggressively. And that, that but th this is a very long-term problem because, for example, if you're talking about the two-war abandoning I, maybe we should explain that the, for since uh, since the late 1940s, the American military posture through the end of the Cold War and 20 years on was that we needed to be in a position where we could fight two major wars at once. We had to have a military, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines that had projecting power in two theaters at once, as we did in World War II, right? Because we fought in Asia and we fought in Europe. And that that was how we should proceed. And then in 2012, we gave up on the two front uh, theory. Barack uh, Obama said that we would we needed a leaner force that was more flexible. And we replaced the two front war doctrine with one plus, which is one major conventional war against a great power and plus, which is a policing action, uh, a counterinsurgency action. Uh, you know, the, the stuff that we have been doing in the post to 9-11 period. Right. So, and and we're now seeing that we have a kind of great power rivalry problem on the planet Earth in which you have Russia, which is asserting itself as a great power, uh, largely and tropically through the things that it had before the Soviet Union, you know, folded and and you know became it became you know a shadow of its former self and then the rising power of china and uh, and we and are a great not... and, and and a great power are the united states that is in a kind of identity crisis about how great it is or was or shall be in the future and i'm sorry but if you're if you're the leaders of china and you look at the united states right now you see a lot of disorder um but you also see that its top 3 most powerful officials if, if you're looking at kind of line of succession are joe biden kamala harris and nancy pelosi these are not necessarily the strongest trio of of leaders <laughs> in this country and and we have a military that is having trouble recruiting right now. It's having trouble having finding Americans who can meet the physical standards for basic training. I mean, you see a country in a in a grip of a kind of crisis, and that isn't necessarily where uh, we should be as a country in terms of thinking yeah. of our role as a great power. The, the Biden administration, to his credit, has been forecasting that it would abandon this one plus strategy in a forthcoming strategy document, which has been right. delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed as a result of this, uh, of the, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, but it'll be very interesting to see whether they commit to that in forms of force posture. The Navy has wanted 355 deployable manned ships forever. They have about 300 now. They think they're going to get there by 2049. Right. Well, that's the problem is, yeah, they can issue a document saying we need to go back to the two to the two front strategy or the two war strategy that is enormously expensive. Yeah. 
I mean, and you you can't just say you want to do it. You actually have to have a national consensus on the need to do it so that the Senate and the House will pay for it. And just to, to add to Christine's list of what other countries are seeing when they look on when they look at us, they're seeing a United States in retreat, in disastrous retreat in Afghanistan. Right. Meanwhile, I mean, that, though, well, that's there's... where all this started. You could almost say right. that the original sin of the period that we are now facing is was Afghanistan the green light for Ukraine? We don't know. But I think a lot of us think that effectively it was that, you know, that and that Putin miscalculated uh, and assumed that Afghanistan was a kind of reflection of the West's of the West rather than a reflection of Biden's idiocy and, you know, you know, uh, strategic, tactical and intellectual capacities. Meanwhile, there's a hopeful note that came across my transom that I want to bring to everybody's attention. Yesterday, we were talking about sort of this nascent impulse on the right to reject uh, markets and the sort of stuff that made for conservatism as we understood it for the better part of the 20th century. Today in the America First Summit in Washington, D.C., where the president, I think, is going to speak, um, Senator Joni Ernst uh, uh, spoke about what our objectives are vis-a-vis Russia, and she said that, quote, we absolutely need, we should, quote, absolutely annihilate the Russian forces and we get them to crawl back to Russia so bloody and bruised that they can't come back, to which she received a, a rousing applause, according to um, Michael Tracy's uh, reporting from this event. Uh, this is going to frustrate tens of nationalist Republicans, uh, but that does seem to reflect the consensus on the right. Uh, Joni Ernst, of course, a two-decade veteran of the Army National Guard and the Army Reserve, um, you know, served in Kuwait, served in, you know, anyway, so she, she's a military person and, uh, and she, she, you know, she don't take shit basically that that's, you know, uh, you know, you gotta love that. It's like, it's like, uh, Elaine Luria. If Republicans want to want to bleed Russia dry in Ukraine. And Democrats are grudgingly accepting the fact that we need to be capable of deterring two great powers on two separate fronts. That's a consensus. Well, it's a consensus until the, you know, until the check, you know, until somebody gives you the check to pay to pay the bill. Um, And of course, there are there is blowback against that. I mean, I think I can't remember if I mentioned this, but Matt Gates saying, you know, he doesn't care what idiot in a tracksuit we support in Ukraine, you know, because, um, you know, there are 17 year old girls to make passes at in Florida. Uh, for him, um, we can at some point we're going to have to reckon with. With what Matt Gates means or if he means anything, um, I think he means a lot, actually, uh, in terms of where the United States and its power structure uh, is. Um, uh, but uh, we're running out of time, so we can't do it today. Uh, but we will be back tomorrow. So for Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Von Horitz. Keep the candle burning.